Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this extra episode, there have been so many momentous days recently. Today, for instance, women around the U.S. and the world and their allies are participating in the second annual Women's March. Yesterday, Congress shut down the government due to differences over border security and immigration, among other things. So when you have a quiet moment, here's a strange and momentous story that has nothing and everything to do with the events of a single day. Carmen Maria Machado's debut story collection, Her Body and Other Parties, is striking a chord among literature lovers and critics. The New York Times summed it up this way, quote, not since Karen Russell's St. Lucy's Home for Girls Raised by Wolves in 2006 has a debut collection of short stories from a relatively unknown author garnered such attention or deserved it more. Machado was shortlisted for the National Book Award that delayed her trip to Seattle. When she got here, she took the opportunity to read the story she calls her hit single, The Husband's Ditch. Carmen Maria Machado gave this reading on January 18th at the Seattle Public Library's Central Library. Please note, this recording contains unedited language of an adult nature. Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for coming out on such a stormy uh, night. I'm Stesha Brandon. I'm the Literature and Humanities Program Manager here at the Seattle Public Library. Welcome to this evening's program with Carmen Maria Machado. And thank you to our author series sponsor, Gary Kunis, and the Seattle Times for generous promotional support of library programs. Thank you as well to our program partner, uh, Elliott Bay Book Company, for being here tonight. And we are just very grateful to the Seattle Public Library Foundation. Private gifts to the foundation from thousands of donors help everyone um, in our community have access to free programs and services. So if any of you are Library Foundation donors here tonight, thank you very much for your support. Now, without further ado, please help me welcome Karen Maeda Allman from Elliott Bay Book Company, who will introduce Ms. Machado. So a few months ago, Carmen Maria Machado's publisher, Grey Wolf Press, contacted us about scheduling a reading with her. And I think this was in the works for a while, as this is a book that our booksellers and our writer community has embraced very early on. Um, and this has always been a community in which short story writers and science fiction, especially by people of color, by women of color, has really found an appreciative audience. But as you know, we had to postpone the initial reading as the author's short story collection, Her Body and Other Parties, was then named as a finalist for the 2017 National Book Award. And the ceremony was actually right during the times when she was supposed to be here. So, and as I was telling Carmen a few minutes ago, we were obsessively looking at Twitter that night. Come on, come on. So, but she's a finalist and very much deserved. So this collection, her debut book, won the Bard Fiction Prize and was a finalist for many other awards, including the Kirkus Prize, the Penn Robert W. Bingham Prize for Debut Fiction, and the National Book Critics Circle's John Leonard Prize. The Husband Stitch, the first story in the collection, was nominated for the Shirley Jackson and Nebula Awards and was long listed for the James Tiptree Award. 
She's an alum of Hedgebrook Women Writers Retreat and the recipient of fellowships from the Elizabeth George Foundation and also the Cintas Foundation and many others. She's currently writer in residence at the University of Pennsylvania. She's also a critic and I, I hope you'll take a minute to look at some of the articles that she has link linked on her website. They're really wonderful. There's some in the New Yorker and Granta and other places. And she has a new memoir coming out and it looks like uh, House in Indiana is forthcoming for 2019 from Gray Wolf Press. And so we look forward to that. So I'd like to read from this judge's citation from the National Book Award. Carmen Maria Machado, Machado's debut story collection is a thunderclap, blending the intimate and the fantastical, the most personal revelations with the most speculative of fictions. Machado expands what short fiction can do. Her characters explore sexual desires while fleeing deadly viruses that promise human extinction. They try to control the shapes of their bodies, but cannot control the phantom children living in their basements. With a gorgeous, muscular language and mordant wit, Machado pulls us into her world, one of corporeal longing and spiritual hunger, a sensual and gothic-tinged alternate reality, both dangerous and addictive. So please join me in welcoming Carmen Maria Machado to Seattle Public Library. Hello, oh my goodness, look at all of you. I've never spoken uh, to a group that's like ascended up toward the back of the room. It's really amazing. I feel like I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a sport. Like I'm, like I'm about to do a sports, I don't know. Um, <clears throat> thank you so much for coming out on this very rainy day. Um, it was eight degrees when I left Philadelphia this morning, so it's actually gorgeous to me out there. It's uh, quite balmy, in fact. Um, but I'm really excited to be here. I love Seattle. I was actually incredibly anxious about missing this event when I found out that the National Book Awards were gonna, um, were gonna run into this event, and I was like, should I? I have to honor my commitments. My publisher was like, they'll understand, it's okay. And I was like very panicked about it, but it, it all worked out, and here I am. Um, <clears throat> so I'm actually going to do a thing that I don't get to do very often, which is read an entire story. So usually when I read, I'm reading an excerpt and that's fine, but I actually have enough time tonight to read a whole story, um, which is just my absolute favorite. So yay, yes, yay. <laughs> um, so I'm gonna be reading The Husband Stitch, which uh, a friend, or not a friend, somebody I, I met called my hit single, and I was like, oh, I guess it is my hit single. It's like, you can't avoid it. It's like playing at the pool. It's like playing on the radio all the time. You're like, I need to get away from this story. Um, so yeah, who here has read Alvin Schwartz's Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark or in a Dark, Dark Room or read them when you were like an adolescent? Excellent. Um, so like a lot of people of a certain generation, those books were like seared into my consciousness in this really intense way. Um, so much so that many years later when I was in graduate school, some friends and I were having a very drunken conversation and the book came up and we all were like, let's share the story from those books that scared us the most. And my first immediate visceral reaction was The Girl with the Green Ribbon. 
And I remember it clearly because I, they were books that I read that, like I said, were sort of seared into my consciousness. I also was a Girl Scout and I did, I camped and I discovered early on that even though I was the weird Girl Scout and even though the other girls made fun of me and even though I was very, I mostly just talked to the other adults, um, turns out you can tell scary stories and scare the shit out of your fellow Girl Scouts and it's super satisfying. Um, and the Alvin Schwartz book had those amazing instructions. So it'd be like, grab the person, you know, be like, you have it, um, which I did and I made someone cry. Uh, and it was like the greatest moment of my whole life. So, um, so yeah, so I sort of, you know, that story kind of came upon me very suddenly then many years later. And, and I was like, you know, I feel like I can imagine a version of that story sort of being retold and I couldn't think of any examples of, of having seen it uh, being retold in a way that was interesting to me, so I was like, all right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give it a shot. So, a husband's stitch. If you read this story out loud, please use the following voices. Me, as a child, high-pitched, forgettable, as a woman, the same. The boy who will grow into a man and be my spouse, robust with serendipity. My father, kind, booming, like your father, or the man you wish was your father. My son, as a small child, gentle, sounding with the faintest of lisps, as a man, like my husband. All other women, interchangeable with my own. In the beginning, I know I want him before he does. This isn't how things are done, but this is how I'm going to do them. I am at a neighbor's party with my parents, and I am 17. I drink half a glass of white wine in the kitchen with a neighbor's teenage daughter. My father doesn't notice. Everything is soft, like a fresh oil painting. The boy is not facing me. I see the muscles of his neck and upper back, how he fairly strains out of his button-down shirts like a day laborer dressed up for a dance, and I run slick. And it isn't that I don't have choices. I am beautiful. I have a pretty mouth. I have breasts that heave out of my dresses in a way that seems innocent and perverse at the same time. I am a good girl from a good family. But he is a little craggy in that way men sometimes are, and I want. He seems like he could want the same thing. I once heard a story about a girl who requested something so vile from her paramour that he told her family and they had her hauled off to a sanitarium. I don't know what deviant pleasure she asked for, though I desperately wish I did. What magical thing could you want so badly they take you away from the known world for wanting it? The boy notices me. He seems sweet, flustered. He says, hello. He asks my name. I have always wanted to choose my moment, and this is the moment I choose. On the deck, I kiss him. He kisses me back, gently at first, but then harder, and even pushes open my mouth a little with his tongue, which surprises me, and I think perhaps him as well. I have imagined a lot of things in the dark, in my bed, beneath the weight of that old quilt, but never this, and I moan. When he pulls away, he seems startled. His eyes dart around for a moment before settling on my throat. What's that, he asks. Oh, this? I touch the ribbon at the back of my neck. It's just my ribbon. 
I run my fingers halfway around its green and glossy length and bring them to rest on the tight bow that sits in the front. He reaches out his hand and I seize it and press it away. You shouldn't touch it, I say. You can't touch it. Before we go inside, he asks if he can see me again. I tell him that I would like that. That night before I sleep, I imagine him again, his tongue pushing open my mouth, and my fingers slide over myself, and I imagine him there, all muscle and desire to please, and I know that we are going to marry. We do. I mean, we will. But first, he takes me in his car, in the dark, to a lake with a marshy edge that is hard to get close to. He kisses me and clasps his hand around my breast, my nipple nodding beneath his fingers. I am not truly sure what he is going to do before he does it. He is hard and hot and dry and smells like bread, and when he breaks me, I scream and cling to him like I am lost at sea. His body locks onto mine and he is pushing, pushing, and before the end he pulls himself out and finishes with my blood slicking him down. I am fascinated and aroused by the rhythm, the concrete sense of his need, the clarity of his release. Afterward he slumps in the seat and I can hear the sound of the pond, loons and crickets, and something that sounds like a banjo being plucked. The wind picks up off the water and cools my body down. I don't know what to do now. I can feel my heart beating between my legs. It hurts, but I imagine it could feel good. I run my hand over myself and feel strains of pleasure from somewhere far off. His breathing becomes quieter, and I realize that he is watching me. My skin is glowing beneath the moonlight coming through the window. When I see him looking, I know I can seize that pleasure, like my fingertips tickling the very end of a balloon string that has almost drifted out of reach. I pull and moan and ride out the crest of sensation, slowly and evenly, biting my tongue all the while. I need more, he says, but he does not rise to do anything. He looks out the window, and so do I. Anything could move out there in the darkness, I think. A hook-handed man, a ghostly hitchhiker forever repeating the same journey. An old woman summoned from the repose of her mirror by the chance of children. Everyone knows those stories, that is, everyone tells them, even if they don't know them, but no one ever believes them. His eyes drift over the water and then return to me. Tell me about your ribbon, he says. There's nothing to tell. It's my ribbon. May I touch it? No. I want to touch it, he says. His fingers twitch a little, and I close my legs and sit up straighter. No. Something in the lake muscles and rides out of the water and then lands with a splash. He turns at the sound. A fish, he says. Sometime I tell him, I will tell you the stories about this lake and her creatures. He smiles at me and rubs his jaw. A little of my blood smears across his skin, but he doesn't notice and I don't say anything. I would like that very much, he says. Take me home, I tell him, and like a gentleman, he does. That night, I wash myself. The silky suds between my legs are the color and scent of rust, but I am newer than I have ever been. My parents are very fond of him. He is a nice boy, they say. He will be a good man. They ask of him about his occupation, his hobbies, his family. He shakes my father's hand firmly and tells my mother flatteries that make her squeal and blush like a girl. 
He comes around twice a week, sometimes thrice. My mother invites him in for supper, and while we eat, I dig my nails into the meat of his leg. After the ice cream puddles in the bowl, I tell my parents that I'm going to walk with him down the lane. We strike off through the night, holding hands sweetly until we are out of sight of the house. I pull him through the trees, and when we find a patch of clear ground, I shimmy off my pantyhose, and on my hands and knees offer myself up to him. I have heard all the stories about girls like me, and I am unafraid to make more of them. I hear the metallic buckle of his pants and the shush as they fall to the ground, and I feel his half-hardness against me. I beg him, no teasing, and he obliges. I moan and push back, and we rut in that clearing, groans of my pleasure and groans of his good fortune mingling and dissipating into the night. We are learning, he and I. There are two rules. He cannot finish inside of me, and he cannot touch my green ribbon. He spends into the dirt, pat, pat, patting like the beginning of rain. I go to touch myself, but my fingers, which had been curling in the dirt beneath me, are filthy. I pull up my underwear and stockings. He makes a sound and points, and I realize that beneath the nylon, my knees are also caked in dirt. I pull the stockings down and brush, and then up again. I smooth my skirt and repin my hair. A single lock has escaped his slicked back curls in his exertion, and I tuck it up with the others. We walk down to the stream, and I run my hands in the current until they are clean again. We stroll back to the house, arms linked chastely. Inside, my mother has made coffee, and we sit around while my father asks him about business. If you read this story out loud, the sound of the clearing can be best reproduced by taking a deep breath and holding it for a long moment. Then release the air all at once, permitting your chest to collapse like a block tower knocked to the ground. Do this again and again, shortening the time between the held breath and the release. I have always been a teller of stories. When I was a young girl, my mother carried me out of a grocery store as I screamed about toes in the produce aisle. Concerned women turned and watched as I kicked the air and pounded my mother's slender back. Potatoes, she corrected when we got back to the house, not toes. She told me to sit in my chair, a child-sized thing built just for me, until my father returned. But no, I had seen those toes, pale and bloody stumps, mixed in amongst the russet tubers. One of them, the one that I had poked with the tip of my index finger, was cold as ice and yielded beneath my touch the way a blister did. When I repeated this detail to my mother, something behind the liquid of her eyes shifted quick as a startled cat. You stay right there, she said. My father returned from work that evening and listened to my story, each detail. You've met Mr. Barnes, have you not? He asked me, referring to the elderly man who ran that particular market. I had met him once, and I said so. He had hair white as a sky before snow, and a wife who drew the signs for the store windows. Why would Mr. Barnes sell toes, my father asked. Where would he get them? Being young and having no understanding of mortuaries or graveyards, I could not answer. And even if he got them somewhere, my father continued, what would he have to gain by selling them amongst the potatoes? They had been there. I'd seen them with my own eyes. But beneath the sunbeam of my father's logic, I felt my doubt unfurl. Most importantly, my father said, arriving triumphantly at his final piece of evidence, why did no one notice the toes except for you? 
As a grown woman, I would have said to my father that there are true things in this world observed by only a single set of eyes. As a girl, I consented to his account of the story and laughed when he scooped me from the chair to kiss me and send me on my way. It is not normal that a girl teaches her boy, but I am only showing him what I want, what plays on the inside of my eyelids as I fall asleep. He comes to know the flicker of my expression as a desire passes through me and I hold nothing back from him. When he tells me that he wants my mouth, the length of my throat, I teach myself not to gag and take all of him into me, moaning around the saltiness. When he asks me my worst secret, I tell him about the teacher who hid me in the closet until the others were gone and made me hold him there, and how afterward I went home and scrubbed my hands with a steel wool pad until they bled, even though the memory strikes such a chord of anger and shame that after I share this, I have nightmares for a month. And when he asks me to marry him, days shy of my 18th birthday, I say, yes, yes, please. And then on that park bench, I sit on his lap and fan my skirt around us so that a passerby would not realize what was happening beneath it. I feel like I know so many parts of you, he says to me, knuckle deep, trying not to pant. And now I will know all of them. There is a story they tell about a girl dared by her peers to venture to a local graveyard after dark. This was her folly. When they told her that standing on someone's grave at night would cause the inhabitant to reach up and pull her under, she scoffed. Scoffing is the first mistake a woman can make. Life is too short to be afraid of nothing, she said, and I will show you. Pride is the second mistake. She could do it, she insisted, because no such fate would befall her. So they gave her a knife to stick into the frosty earth as a way of proving her presence and her theory. She went to that graveyard. Some storytellers say that she picked the grave at random. I believe she selected a very old one, her choice tinged by self-doubt and the latent belief that if she were wrong, the intact muscle and flesh of a newly dead corpse would be more dangerous than one centuries gone. She knelt on the grave and plunged the blade deep. As she stood to run, for there was no one to see her fear, she found she couldn't escape. Something was clutching at her clothes. She cried out and fell to the ground. When morning came, her friends arrived at the cemetery. They found her dead on the grave, the blade pinning the sturdy wool of her skirt to the earth. Dead of fright or exposure, would it matter when the parents arrived? She wasn't wrong, but it didn't matter anymore. Afterward, everyone believed she had wished to die, even though she had died proving she wanted to live. As it turns out, being right was the third and worst mistake. My parents are pleased about the marriage. My mother says that even though girls nowadays are starting to marry late, she married my father when she was 19 and was glad that she did. When I select my wedding gown, I am reminded of the story of the young woman who wished to go to a dance with her lover but could not afford a dress. She purchased a lovely white frock from a secondhand shop and then later fell ill and passed from this earth. A doctor who examined her in her final days discovered that she had died from an exposure to embalming fluid. It turned, out that an, it turned out that an unscrupulous undertaker's assistant had stolen the dress from the corpse of a bride. The moral of that story, I think, is that being poor will kill you. I spend more on my dress than I intend, but it is very beautiful and better than being dead. 
When I fold it into my hope chest, I think about the bride who played hide-and-go-seek on her wedding day and hid in the attic in an old trunk that snapped shut around her and did not open. She was trapped there until she died. People thought she had run away until years later when a maid found her skeleton in a white dress folded inside that dark space. Brides never fare well in stories. Stories can sense happiness and snuff it out like a candle. We marry in April on an unseasonably cold afternoon. He sees me before the wedding in my dress and insists on kissing me deeply and reaching inside my bodice. He becomes hard and I tell him that I want him to use my body as he sees fit. I rescind my first rule given the occasion. He pushes me against the wall and puts his hand against the tile near my throat to steady himself. His thumb brushes my ribbon. He does not move his hand, and as he works himself in me, he says, I love you, I love you, I love you. I do not know if I'm the first woman to walk up the aisle of St. George's with semen leaking down her leg, but I like to imagine that I am. For our honeymoon, we go on a tour of Europe. We are not rich, but we make it work. Europe is a continent of stories, and in between consummations, I learn them. We go from bustling ancient metropolises to sleepy villages to alpine retreats and back again, sipping spirits and pulling roasted meat from bones with our teeth, eating spätzle and olives and ravioli and a creamy grain I do not recognize but come to crave each morning. We cannot afford a sleeper car on the train, but my husband bribes an attendant to permit us one hour in an empty room, and in that way we couple over the Rhine, my husband pinning me to the rickety frame and howling something more, like something more primordial than the mountains we cross. I recognize that this is not the entire world, but it is the first part of it that I am seeing, and I am electrified by the possibility. If you are reading the story out loud, make the sound of the bed under the tension of train travel and lovemaking by straining a folding metal chair against its hinges. When you are exhausted with that, sing the half-remembered lyrics of old songs to the person closest to you, thinking of lullabies for children. My cycle stops soon after you return from our trip. I tell my husband one night, after we are spent and sprawled across the bed, he glows with real delight. A child, he says. He lies back with his hand beneath, hands beneath his head. A child. He is quiet for so long that I think he's fallen asleep, that when I look over, his eyes are open and fixed on the ceiling. He rolls on his side and gazes at me. Will the child have a ribbon? I feel my jaw tighten and my hand fondles my bow involuntarily. My mind skips between many answers and I settle on the one that brings me the least amount of anger. There's no saying now, I tell him finally. He startles me then, running his hand around my throat. I put up my hands to stop him, but he uses his strength, grabbing my wrist with one hand as he touches the ribbon with the other. He presses the silky length with his thumb. He touches the bow delicately, as if he is massaging my sex. Please, I say, please don't. He does not seem to hear. Please, I say again, my voice louder but cracking in the middle. He could have done it then, untied the bow if he'd chosen to. But he releases me and rolls on his back as if nothing has happened. My wrists ache and I rub them. I need a glass of water, I say. I get up and go to the bathroom. 
I run the tap and then frantically check my ribbon, tears caught in my lashes. The bow is still tight. There is a story I love about a pioneer husband and wife killed by wolves. Neighbors found their bodies torn apart and strewn around their tiny cabin, but never located their infant daughter, alive or dead. People claim they saw the girl running with a wolf pack, loping over the terrain as wild and feral as any of her companions. News of her would ripple through the local settlements upon each sighting. She menaced a hunter in the local woods. She measured, she, she measured a hunt, menaced? She menaced a hunter in the winter forest, though perhaps he was less menaced than startled at a tiny naked girl baring her teeth and howling so rawly it quaked the skin on his bones. A young woman on the cusp of marriage age trying to take down a horse. People even saw her ripping open a chicken in an explosion of feathers. Many years later, she was said to be resting in the rushes near a riverbank, suckling two wolf cubs. I like to imagine that they came from her body, the lineage of wolves tainted human just the once. They certainly bloodied her breasts, but she did not mind because they were hers and only hers. I believe that their, when their muzzles and teeth pressed against her, she felt a kind of sanctuary, peace she would have found nowhere else. She must have been better among them than she would have been otherwise. Of that, I am certain. Months pass and my stomach swells. Inside of me, our child is swimming fiercely, kicking and pushing and clawing. In public, I gasp and stagger to the side, clutching my belly and hissing through my teeth to little one as I call it to stop. Once I stumble on a walk in the park, the same park where my husband had proposed to me the year before, and go to my knees, breathing heavily and near weeping. A woman passing by helps me to sit up and gives me some water, telling me that the first pregnancy is always the worst but they get better with time. It is the worst, but for so many reasons besides my altered form. I sing to my child and think about the old wives' tales of carrying the baby high or low. Do I carry a boy inside of me, the image of his father, or a girl, a daughter who would soften the sons that followed? I have no siblings, but I know that the eldest girls sweeten their brothers and are protected protected by them from the dangers of the world, an arrangement that buoys my heart. My body changes in ways I do not expect. My breasts are large and hot, my stomach lined with pale marks, the inverse of a tiger's. I feel monstrous, but my husband seems renewed with desire, as if my novel shape has refreshed our list of perversities. And my body responds. In line at the supermarket, receiving communion at church, I am marked by a new and ferocious want, leaving me slippery and swollen at the slightest provocation. When he comes home each day, my husband has made a list in his mind of the things he desires for me, and I am willing to provide them and more, having been on the edge of coming since that morning's purchase of bread and carrots. I'm the luckiest man alive, he says, running his hand across my stomach. In the mornings, he kisses me and fondles me, and sometimes takes me before his coffee and toast. He goes to work with the spring in his step. He comes home with one promotion, and then another. Money for my family, he says. More money for our happiness. I go into labor in the middle of the night, every inch of my insides twisting into an obscene knot before release. I scream like I have not screamed since that night by the lake, but for contrary reasons. 
Now the pleasure of the knowledge that my child is coming is dismantled by unyielding agony. I am in labor for 20 hours. I nearly wrench off my husband's hand, howling obscenities that do not seem to shock the nurse. The doctor is frustratingly patient, peering down between my legs, his white eyes making unreadable Morse code across his forehead. What's happening, I ask. Breathe, he commands. I am certain that if any more time passes, I will crush my own teeth to powder. I look to my husband, who kisses my forehead and asks the doctor what's happening. I'm not satisfied this will be a natural birth, the doctor says. We may have to deliver the baby surgically. No, please, I say, I don't want that, please. If there's no movement soon, we're gonna do it, the doctor says. It may be best for everyone. He looks up and I'm almost certain he winks at my husband, but pain makes the mind see things differently than they are. I make a deal with little one in my mind. Little one, I think, this is the last time we are going to be just you and me. Please don't make them cut you out of me. Little one is born 20 minutes later. They do have to make a cut, but not across my stomach as I feared. The doctor draws his scalpel down instead, and I feel little, just tugging, though perhaps it is what they have given me. When the baby is placed in my arms, I examine the wrinkled body from head to toe, the color of a sunset sky, and streaked in red. No ribbon, a boy. I begin to weep and curl the unmarked baby into my chest. The nurse shows me how to nurse him, and I am so happy to feel him drink, to touch the curls of his fingers, little commas, each of them. If you are reading the story out loud, give a paring knife to the listeners and ask them to cut the tender flap of skin between your index finger and thumb. Afterward, thank them. There is a story about a woman who goes into labor when the attending physician is tired. There is a story about a woman who herself was born too early. There is a story about a woman whose body clung to her child so hard they had to cut her to retrieve him. There is a story about a woman who heard a story about a woman who birthed wolf cups in secret. When you think about it, stories had this way of running together like raindrops in a pond. Each one is born from the clouds separate, but once they have come together, there is no way to tell them apart. If you are reading the story out loud, move aside the curtain to illustrate this final point to your listeners. It'll be raining, I promise. They take the babies that they might fix me where I cut. They gave me something that makes me sleepy, delivered through a mask pressed gently to my mouth and nose. My husband jokes around with the doctor as he holds my hand. How much to get that extra stitch, he says. You offer that, right? Please, I say to him but it comes out slurred and twisted and possibly no more than a small moan. Neither man turns his head toward me. The doctor chuckles, you aren't the first. I slide in a long tunnel and then surface again, but covered in something heavy and dark like oil. I feel like I'm gonna vomit. The rumor is something like, like a, and then I am awake, wide awake, and my husband is gone and the doctor is gone. And the baby, where is, the nurse sticks her head in the door. Your husband went to get coffee, she said, and the baby is asleep in the bassinet. The doctor walks in behind her, wiping his hands on a cloth. You're all sewn up, don't you worry, he said. Nice and tight, everyone's happy. The nurse will speak to you about recovery. You're gonna need to rest for a while. The baby wakes up. The nurse scoops him from his swaddle and places him in my arms again. 
He is so beautiful, I have to remind myself to breathe. I recover a small amount every day. I move slowly and ache. My husband moves to touch me, and I push him away. I want to return to our life as it was, but such things cannot be helped right now. I am already nursing and rising at all hours to take care of our son with my pain. Then one day I take him in my hand, and afterward he is so content I realize that I can sate him even if I remain unsated. Around our son's first birthday, I am healed enough to take my husband back to my bed. I weep with happiness when he touches me, fills me, fills me as, I want to be, as I have wanted to be filled for so long. My son is a good baby. He grows and grows. We try to have another child, but I suspect that little one did so much ruinous damage inside of me that my body could not house another. You were a poor tenant, little one, I say to him, rubbing shampoo in his fine brown hair, and I shall revoke your deposit. He splashes around in the sink, cackling with happiness. My son touches my ribbon, but never in a way that makes me afraid. He thinks of it as a part of me and treats it no differently than he would an ear or a finger. It gives him delight in a way that houses no wanting, and this pleases me. I do not know if my husband is sad that we cannot have another child. He keeps his sorrow as close to himself as he is open with his desires. He is a good father, and he loves his boy. Back from work, they play games of chase and run in the yard. He is too young to catch a ball, but my husband still patiently rolls it to him in the grass, and our son picks it up and drops it again, and my husband gestures to me and cries, Look, look, do you see? He's going to throw it soon enough. Of all the stories I know about mothers, this one is the most real. A young American girl is visiting Paris with her mother when the woman begins to feel ill. They decide to check into a hotel for a few days so the mother can rest, and the daughter, doctor, the daughter calls for a doctor to assess her. After a brief examination, the doctor tells the daughter that her mother, all her mother needs is some medicine. He takes the daughter to a taxi, gives the driver instructions in French, and explains to the girl that the driver will take her to his residence where his wife will give her the appropriate remedy. They drive and drive for a very long time, and when the girl arrives, she is frustrated by the unbearable slowness of the doctor's wife, who meticulously assembles the pills from powder. When she gets back into the taxi, the driver meanders down the streets, sometimes doubling back over the same avenue. Frustrated, the girl gets out of the taxi to return to the hotel on foot. When she finally arrives, the hotel clerk tells her that he has never seen her before. When she runs up to the room where her mother had been resting, she finds the walls a different color, the furnishings different than her memory, and her mother nowhere in sight. There are many endings to this story. In one of them, the girl is gloriously persistent and certain, renting a room nearby and staking out the hotel, eventually seducing a young man who works in the laundry and discovering the truth that her mother had died of a highly contagious and fatal disease, departing this plane shortly after the daughter was sent from the hotel by the doctor. To avoid a citywide panic, the staff removed and buried the body, repainted and refurnished the room, and bribed all involved to swear that they never met the pair. In another version of the story, the girl wanders the streets of Paris for years, believing that she is mad, that she invented her mother and her life with her mother in her own diseased mind. 
The daughter stumbles from hotel to hotel, confused and grieving, though for, who, though for whom she cannot say. Each time she is ejected from another posh lobby, she weeps for something lost. Her mother is dead and she does not know it. She won't know it until she, herself, is also dead, assuming you believe in paradise. I don't need to tell you the moral of this story. I think you already know what it is. Our son enters school when he is five, and I remember his teacher from that day in the park when she crouched to help me and predicted easy future pregnancies. She remembers me as well, and we talk briefly in the hallway. I tell her that we've had no more children since our son, and now that he has started school, my days will be altered towards sloth and boredom. She is kind. She tells me that if I am looking for a way to occupy my time, there is a wonderful women's art class at the local college. That night after my son is in bed, my husband reaches his hand across the couch and slides it up my leg. Come to me, he says, and I twinge with pleasure. I slide off the couch, smoothing my skirt very prettily as I shuffle over to him on my knees. I kiss his leg, running my hand up to his belt, tucking him from his bonds before swallowing him whole. He runs his hands through my hair, stroking my head, groaning and pressing into me. And I don't realize that his hand is sliding down the back of my neck until he is trying to loop his fingers through the ribbon. I gasp and pull away quickly, falling back and frantically checking my bow. He's still sitting there, slick with my spit. Come back here, he says. No, I say, you'll touch my ribbon. He stands and tucks himself into his pants, zipping them up. A wife, he says, should have no secrets from her husband. I don't have any secrets, I tell him. The ribbon. The ribbon's not a secret, it's just mine. Were you born with it? Why your throat? Why is it green? I do not answer. He is silent for a long minute. Then, a wife should have no secrets. My nose grows hot. I don't want to cry. I've given you everything you've ever asked for, I say. Am I not allowed this one thing? I want to know. You think you want to know, I say, but you don't. Why do you want to hide it from me? I'm not hiding it. It just isn't yours. He gets down very close to me, and I pull back from the smell of bourbon. I hear a creak, and we both look up to see our son's feet vanishing up the staircase. When my husband goes to sleep that night, he does so with a hot and burning anger that falls away as soon as he is truly dreaming. I am up for a long time listening to his breathing, wondering if perhaps men have ribbons that do not look like ribbons. Maybe we are all marked in some way, even if it's impossible to see. The next day, our son touches at my throat and asks about my ribbon. He tries to pull at it, and though it pains me, I have to make it forbidden to him. When he reaches for it, I shake a can of pennies. It crashes discordantly, and he withdraws and weeps. Something is lost between us, and I never find it again. If you are reading this story out loud, prepare a soda can full of pennies. When you arrive at this moment, shake it loudly in the face of the person closest to you. Observe their expression of startled fear and then betrayal. Notice how they never look at you exactly the same way for the rest of your days. I enroll in the art class for women. When my husband is at work and my son is in school, I drive to the sprawling green campus and the squat gray building where the art classes are held. 
Presumably the male nudes are kept from our eyes in some deference to propriety, but the class has its own energy. There is plenty to see on a strange woman's naked form, plenty to contemplate as you roll charcoal and mix paints. I see more than one woman shifting forward and back in her seat to, to redistribute blood flow. One woman in particular returns over and over. Her ribbon is red and is knotted around her ankle. Her skin is the color of olives, and a trail of dark hair runs from her belly button to her mons. I know that I should not want her, not because she is a woman and not because she is a stranger, but because it is her job to disrobe, and I feel shame taking advantage of such a state. No small amount of guilt com comes along with my wandering eyes, but as my pencil traces her contours, so does my hand in the secret recesses of my mind. I am not even certain how such a thing would happen, but the possibilities incense me to near madness. One afternoon after class, I turn a hallway corner and she is there, the woman, clothed, wrapped in a raincoat. Her gaze transfixes me, and this close I can see the band of gold around each of her pupils, as though her eyes are twin solar eclipses. She greets me, and I her. We sit down together in a booth at a nearby diner, our knees occasionally brushing up against each other beneath the formica. She drinks a cup of black coffee, which startles me, though I don't know why. I ask if she has any children. She does, she says, a daughter, a beautiful girl of 11. 11 is a terrifying age, she says. I remember nothing before I was 11, but then there it was, all color and horror. What a number, she says, what a show. Then her face slips somewhere else for a moment, as if she is dipped beneath the surface of a lake, and when it comes back, she briefly speaks to her daughter's accomplishments in voice and music. We do not discuss the specific fears of raising a girl child. Truthfully, I am afraid even to ask. I also do not ask her if she's married, and though she does not volunteer the information, she does not wear a ring. We talk about my son, about the art class, I desperately want to know what state of need has sent her to, to disrobe before us, but perhaps I do not ask because the answer would be, like adolescence, too frightening to forget. I am captivated by her. There's no other way to put it. There's something easy about her, but not easy the way I was, the way I am. She's like dough, how the give it beneath kneading hands disguises its sturdiness, its potential. When I look away from her and then look back, she seems twice as large as before. Perhaps we can talk again sometime, I say to her. This has been a very pleasant afternoon. She nods to me. I pay for her coffee. I do not want to tell my husband about her, but he can sense in me some untapped desire. One night he asks what royals inside, and I confess it to him. I even describe the details of her ribbon, releasing an extra flood of shame. He is so glad of this development that he begins to mutter a long and exhaustive fantasy as he removes his pants and enter me, and I cannot even hear all of it, though I imagine it within its parameters, she and I are together, or perhaps both of us with him. I feel, I feel as if I betrayed her somehow, and I never return to the class. I find other amusements to occupy my days. If you are if you are reading the story out loud, force a listener to reveal a devastating secret then open the nearest window to the street and scream it as loudly as you are able. One of my favorite stories is about an old woman and her husband, a man mean as Mondays, who scared her with violence of his temper and the shifting nature of his whims. 
She was able to keep him satisfied with her cooking, to which he was a complete captive. One day he brought her a fat, a fat liver to cook for him, and she did, using herbs and broth. But the smell of her own artistry overtook her, and a few nibbles became a few bites, and soon the liver was gone. She had no money with which to purchase a second one, and she was terrified of her husband's reaction to she, should he discover his meal was gone. So she crept to the church next door, where a woman had been re least recently laid to rest. She approached the shrouded figure, then cut into it with a pair of kitchen shears and stole the liver from the corpse. That night, the woman's husband dabbed his lips with a napkin and declared the meal the finest he'd ever eaten. When they went to sleep, the old woman heard the front door open and a thin wail wafted through the rooms. Who has my liver? Who has my liver? The old woman could hear the voice coming closer and closer to the bedroom. There was a hush as the door swung open. The dead woman posed her query again. The old woman flung her blankets off her husband. He has it, she declared triumphantly. Then she saw the face of the dead woman and recognized her own mouth and eyes. She looked down at her abdomen remembering now how she carved into her own belly. She bled freely there in the bed, whispering something over and over as she died, something you and I will never be privy to. Next to her, as the blood seeped into the heart of the mattress, her husband slumbered on. That may not be the version of the story you're familiar with, but I assure you, it's the one you need to know. My husband is strangely excited for Halloween. I took one of his old tweed coats and fashioned one for our son so that he might be a tiny professor or another stuffy academic. I even give him a pipe on which to gnaw. Our son clicks between his teeth in a way that I find unsettlingly adult. Mama, my son says, what are you? I am not in costume, and so I tell him I'm his mother. The pipe falls from his little mouth onto the floor, and he screams so loudly I'm unable to move. My husband swoops in and picks him up, talking to him in a low voice, repeating his name between his sobs. It is only as his breathing returns to normal that I'm able to, to identify my mistake. He is not old enough to know the story of the naughty girls who wanted the toy drum and who were wicked toward their mother until she went away and was replaced with a new mother, one with glass eyes and a thumping wooden tail. He is too young for the stories and their trueness, but I've inadvertently told him one anyway. The story of the little boy who only discovered on a Halloween that his mother was not his mother, except on the day when everyone wore a mask. Regret sluices hot up my throat. I try to hold him and kiss him, but he only wishes to go out into the street where the sun has dipped below the horizon and a hazy chill is bruising the shadows. I have little use for this holiday. I do not wish for the walk. I do not wish to walk my son to strangers' houses or to assemble popcorn balls and wait for trick-or-treat callers to show up demanding ransom. Still, I wait inside with a whole tray of sticky confections, answering the door to tiny queens and ghosts. I think of my son. When they leave, I put down the tray and rest my head in my hands. Our son comes home laughing, gnawing on a piece of candy that has turned his mouth the color of a plum. I'm angry at my husband. I wish he had waited to come home before permitting the consumption of the cash. Has he never heard the stories, the pins pressed into the chocolates, the razor blades sunk into the apples? It is like him to not understand what there is to be afraid of in this world, but I am still furious. I examine my son's mouth, 
but there is no sharp metal plunge into his palate. He laughs and spins around the house, dizzy and electrified from the treats and the excitement. He wraps his arms around my legs, the early, earlier incident forgotten. The forgiveness tastes sweeter than any candidate that can be given at any door. When he climbs into my lap, I sing to him until he falls asleep. Our son grows and grows. He is eight, ten. First, I tell him the fairy tales, the very oldest one with the pain and death and forced marriage pared away like dead foliage. Mermaids grow feet and it feels like laughter. Naughty pigs trot away from grand feasts, reformed and uneaten. Evil witches leave the castle and move into small cottages and live out their days painting portraits of small woodland creatures. As he grows, though, he asks too many questions. Why would they not eat the pig, hungry as they were and wicked as he, has, as he had been? Why was the witch permitted to go free after her terrible deeds? And the sensation of fins to feet being anything less than agonizing, he rejects outright after cutting his hand with a pair of scissors. It would hoit, he says, for he is struggling with his R's. I agree with him as I bandage the cut. It would. So I tell him the stories that are closer to true. Children who go missing along a particular stretch of railroad track, lured by the sound of a phantom train to parts unknown. A black dog that appears at a person's doorstep three days before their passing. A trio of frogs that corner you in the marshlands and tell your fortune for a price. My husband, I think, would forbid these stories, but my son listens to them with solemnity and keeps them to himself. The school puts on a performance of the little buckle boy, and he is the lead, the buckle boy, and I join a committee of mothers making costumes for the children. I am the chief costume maker in a room full of women, all of us sewing together little pink petals for the flower children, making tiny white pantaloons for the pirates. One of the mothers has a pale yellow ribbon on her finger, and it constantly tangles in the thread. She swears and cries. One day, I even have to use the delicate sewing shears to pick at the offending threads. I try to be delicate. She shakes her head as I free her from a peony. It's such a bother, isn't it, she says. I nod. Outside the window, the children play, knocking each other off the playground equipment, popping the heads off of dandelions. The play goes beautifully. Opening night, our son blazes through his monologue. Perfect pitch and cadence. No one has ever done better. Our son is 12. He asks me, he asks me about my ribbon point blank. I tell him that we are all different, and sometimes you should not ask questions. I assure him that he'll understand when he is grown. I distract him with stories that have no ribbons, angels who desire to be human, and ghosts who don't realize they're dead, and children who turn to ash. He stops smiling like a child, milky sweetness replaced with something sharp and burning, like hair sizzling on a stove. Our son is 13, 14. His hair is a little too long, but I can't bear to cut it short. My, his, my husband scrambles the locks with his hand on his way to work and kisses me on the side of my mouth. On his way to school, our son waits for the neighbor boy who walks with a brace. He exhibits the subtlest compassion, my son. No instinct for cruelty like some. The world has enough bullies, I've told him over and over. This is the year he stops asking for my stories. Our son is 15, 17. He is a brilliant boy. He has his father's knack for people, my air of mystery. He begins to court a beautiful girl from his high school who has a bright smile and a warm presence. I am happy to meet her, but never insist that we should wait up for their return, remembering my own youth. 
When he tells us he's been accepted to a university to study engineering, I am overjoyed. We march through the house, singing songs and laughing. When my husband comes home, he joins in the Jubilee, and we drive to a local seafood restaurant. His father tells him over halibut, we are so proud of you. Our son laughs and says that he also wishes to marry his girl. We clasp hands and are even happier. Such a good boy, such a wonderful life to look forward to. Even the luckiest woman alive has not seen joy like this. There's a classic, a real classic, that I haven't told you yet. A girlfriend and her boyfriend went parking. Some people say that they were kissing in a car, but I know the story. I was there. They were parked on the edge of a lake. They were turning around in the back seat as if the world was moments from ending. Maybe it was. She offered herself and he took her, and after it was over, they turned on the radio. The voice on the radio announced that a mad, hook-handed man, hook-handed murderer had escaped from a local asylum. The boyfriend chuckled as he flipped to a music station. As the song ended, the girlfriend heard a thin, scratching sound like a paperclip over glass. She looked at her boyfriend and then pulled her cardigan over her bare shoulders, wrapping one arm around her breasts. We should go, she said. Nah, the boyfriend said, let's do that again. I've gone all night. What if the killer comes here, the girl asked. The asylum is very close. We'll be fine, baby, the boyfriend said. Don't you trust me? The girlfriend nodded reluctantly. Well then, he said, his voice trailing off in a way that she would come to know so well. He took her hand off her chest and placed it onto himself. She finally looked away from the lakeside. Outside, the moonlight glinted off the shiny steel hook. The killer waved at her, grinning. I'm sorry, I've forgotten the rest of the story. The house is so silent without our son. I walk through it, touching all the surfaces. I am happy, but something inside of me is shifting into a strange new place. That night, my husband asks if I wish to christen the newly empty rooms. We have not coupled so fiercely since before our son was born. Bent over the kitchen table, something old is lit within me, and I remember the way we had desired before, how we left love streaked over all the surfaces, how he relished in my darkest spaces. I scream with ferocity, not caring if the neighbors hear, not caring if anyone looks through the window with its undrawn curtains and sees my husband buried in my mouth. I would go out into the lawn if he asked me. Let him take me from behind in sight of the whole neighborhood. I could have met anyone at that party when I was 17, stupid boys or prudish boys or violent boys, religious boys who would have made me move to some distant country to convert its denizens or some other such nonsense. I could have experienced untold numbers of sorrows or dissatisfactions. But as I straddle him on the floor, riding him and crying out, I know that I've made the right choice. We fall asleep exhausted, sprawled naked in our bed. When I wake up, my husband is kissing the back of my neck, probing the ribbon with his tongue. My body rebels wildly, still throbbing with the memories of pleasure but bucking hard against the betrayal. I say his name and he does not respond. I say it again and he holds me against him and continues. I wedge my elbows into his side and when he loosens from me in surprise, I sit up and face him. He looks confused and hurt like my son the day I shook the can of pennies. Resolve runs out of me. I touch the ribbon. I look at the face of my husband, the beginning and end of his desires all etched there. He is not a bad man, 
and that, I realize suddenly, is the root of my hurt. He's not a bad man at all. To describe him as evil or wicked or corrupted would do a deep disservice to him. And yet, do you want to untie the ribbon, I ask him? After these many years, is that what you want of me? His face flashes gaily and then greedily, and he runs his hand up my bare breast into my bow. Yes, he says, yes. I do not have to touch him to know that he grows at the thought. I close my eyes. I remember the boy of the party, the one who kissed me and broke me open by that lakeside, who did with me what I wanted, who gave me a son and helped him grow into a man himself. Then I say, do what you want. With trembling fingers, he takes one of the ends. The bow undoes slowly, the long bound ends crimped with habit. My husband groans, but I don't think he realizes it. He loops his finger through the final twist and pulls. The ribbon falls away. It floats down and curls onto the bed, or so I imagine, because I cannot look down to follow its descent. My husband frowns, and then his face begins to open with some other expression, sorrow or maybe preemptive loss. My hand flies up in front of me in involuntary motion for balance or some other futility, and beyond it, his image is gone. I love you, I assure him, more than you could possibly know. No, he says, but I don't know to what he's responding. If you are reading the story out loud, you may be wondering if the place my ribbon protected was wet with blood and openings, or smooth and neutered like the nexus between the legs of a doll. I'm afraid I can't tell you, because I don't know. For these questions and others, and their lack of resolution, I am sorry. My weight shifts, and with it, gravity seizes me. My husband's face falls away, and then I see the ceiling, and then the wall behind me. As my lopped head tips backward off my neck and rolls off the bed, I feel as lonely as I have ever been. Thank you. So are we to question time now? Excellent. All right. Does anyone have a question? I can, I can sort of see. Oh, yeah. Thank you. The house. Yes, that's very helpful. Anyone? Wave your hand around if, if I'm not calling on you. No question. I'll answer any question you have. Any, any question, literally. Yes. Oh, right. I'm repeating. I had to repeat the question. Yes. So the question is, since I've, I've gone to both the Iowa Writers Workshop and also the Clarion Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers Workshop, um, like how, sort of how do I see that conversation going? Am I am I repeating that correctly, or the difference in like the communities or the genres or? Okay, sure, yeah, um, yeah. So I mean, yes. Yeah, so I, I did an MFA program at the Iowa Writers Workshop, and then I did Clarion actually immediately afterwards. So for those of you who do not know about Clarion, it's this really amazing six week sort of I, I guess you could call it like a science fiction and fantasy boot camp. Um, there's actually one here in Seattle called Clarion West, and there's one in San Diego called that's just Clarion, um, and there, it's a really incredible, if you are interested in writing science fiction or fantasy at all, I recommend you check it out, it's pretty amazing. Um, 
Yeah, and like both of those programs were really amazing. Actually, one of my clarion teachers, I'm not gonna blow up his spot, but one of my clarion teachers is actually here in the audience right now. Um, but yeah, they're really different. So like the thing about Iowa that was so amazing was like I got to go and for two years I just had, like I was funded and I just got to like go write and just like experiment and play around. Um, and that was really incredible and really useful for me and kind of helped me grow as an artist and just gave me that space. Clarion, I mean, it's, it's, it's really different because you're writing a story a week. So imagine writing six stories in six weeks and then workshopping 17 other people's stories that they are also writing. Um, and then also a lot of alcohol and like zero sleep. And that's basically Clarion. So it's like a really compressed, it's like a kind of a different energy uh, than an MFA program. Yeah, and I mean both, I mean I'm really interested in, I, I sort of one of those writers I try to kind of have a relationship with both the so-called genre community and the literary community, um, which in many ways like overlap um, in, in terms of the, the work, but it's weird, it's like there are these two sort of distinct communities with like distinct lineages, so they have like Asimovs and um, analog and like, you know, the old pulp magazines and Clarion and then you also have things like MFA programs and like the New Yorker and right, it's like sort of a different track. Um, and there is some overlap, like so like Jeff Vandermeer is a good example of a writer who like started off in the genre world and has now sort of crossed over, you could call, let's say like into the lit world, Kelly Link, you know, she was a finalist for the Pulitzer a few years ago, but she like got her start, you know, uh, in the genre world. Um, so yeah, they're both like really amazing. They have a lot to offer. I sort of wish there was more crossover because I like, for example, like there's a genre writer, Sophia Samatar, who I'm like literally obsessed with. She's like one of my favorite contemporary writers. And a lot of people who only sort of follow the lit world don't really know about her as much as they should, which is a crime because she's a genius. So yeah, I mean, I feel like I'm not super interested in like, in like what genre my work occupies, um, but both communities are really ex have a lot of exciting things to offer, and um, also a lot of the um, genre magazines pay. Gotta get that money, so it's like it's like amazing, you know. They're they're because it's it sort of comes from this um, tradition of like, you know, you get a certain number, of, like a certain number amount per word. You know, it's this very sort of old tradition, and it's like the lit community. It's sort of like maybe we'll give you an issue and like a hundred dollars, or maybe fifty dollars, or maybe two hundred dollars, or maybe no dollars. You know, <laughs> um, so yeah, so uh, but yeah, I'm really grateful to have done both. I mean, I loved Clarion, and I met some amazing people there, and I also really loved my MFA program. So, so that was like a really long answer, but yeah. Other questions. So the question is, you're, you're asking about especially heinous, the story about that has, uh, uses Law and Order SVU as its framework, um, and like what's my relationship with the show? Um, and do I plan on doing anything like that in the future? So I didn't think so. I actually thought that, like, that this would be, that would be like my only sort of TV story. And then recently, so Hulu just put all of ER on Hulu. And I, I saw it and I was like, well, not getting any work done from like a month and a half because I love ER <laughs> and I haven't seen it in a really long time. Um, and it was actually like a, a TV show that I watched as a young woman. So now I'm like, I'm like, do I want to like write like a medical show story? Can I do that twice? Like, can I do it a second time? I don't know. We'll see. Um, yeah. So my relationship with Lawner SVU is like pretty complicated. So I mean, obviously, like most human beings on this earth. I used to watch Lawner SVU because like it would be on USA Today and you'd turn the channel on and you'd be like two thirds of the way through an episode. You'd be like, huh, interesting. And you don't have no idea who the characters were, or what was going on, but you would still watch it. And then it would end and you'd be like, oh, the next one's starting. I'll just watch this one. And then seven hours later, you're still watching like a marathon of Lawner SVU. Um, and I'm really interested in the fact that 
A, it's the only like currently running version of Law and Order. S Law and Order is the rape. So the rape one is the one that like we keep watching and it's still on, on the air. Um, I'm fascinated by the way the show seems both aware and utterly oblivious to its own sort of like mission. <laughs> um, so like it's a show about rape and how rape is bad, but like the detectives are constantly threatening rape to like suspects. They're like, you're gonna go to prison and then guess what's gonna happen. You know, it's like, and it's like, wow, that you're literally like threat, like what? <laughs> like, um, and I feel like there's a lot to say about like how this like intense sort of commodification of women's bodies is like this sort of massive like cultural engine that like drives um, that is like sort of the, the the centerpiece of this like Dick Wolf universe or whatever. Um, yeah, and then also one time I got swine flu and was and it was right when um, Lana, right when Netflix had started that thing where instead of having to click to the next episode, it would just start play, it would keep playing. So that so I was I was like getting kind of sick and I was like I don't feel good. I called out of work, started playing Lana SVU from the beginning, which I'd never like seen it in any kind of order before. And then I was like, you know, I had like a fever. I like lost three days of my life. And the whole time Law and SVU was just playing in the background. Um, and so I sort of also sort of believe that, that that very surreal sort of Lynchian fever hellscape that I experienced is also very like influential and sort of impacted that story. Um, so yeah, so I mean, and I'm just like, I don't know, I watch a lot of television and I feel like if I can justify that I'm writing, I'm watching it to expand my mind and like write a story that it's like not wasted, <laughs> which is really what I hope because otherwise I've wasted a lot of time. Um, this is my, I have the same logic with video games. It's like, well, I'm gonna write a video game story so this 130 hours I've spent on like this game is like fine or whatever. Anyway, uh, yeah, so yeah, so maybe I'll write another TV story, I don't know, but that story is, is really, um, I love that story. People, it's very controversial. People really hate it. <laughs> um, people are often like, I love this book, except for that horrible, horrible law and order thing in the middle. And I was like, oh, sorry. Um, but yeah, I really love that story a lot. So I'm glad you love it. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, so, you, so just to repeat the question, um, how does it feel to like, have my books come out at this like, weird cultural moment that we're having that sort of seems to sync up with this book? So it's really weird because... I've sold this book two years ago, and I've wrote it five years before that. So this book has been in progress for a long time. Obama was president when I started writing it. Um, and it's weird, because like now, and like I would give away my book, like I would just give it away to the universe if like Donald Trump was not president. Like I would do that, but I can't, unfortunately. Um, so it, it sucks that it's relevant. Like I don't want, I wish it wasn't relevant. <laughs> um, I'm glad that people find it cathartic, um, it's been really weird to just like have, to like sort of inadvertently enter this cultural conversation. But it's like, it's like things are bad now, but like they're not actually worse. Like I feel like women's lives have been garbage for like all of human history, right? And like right now we're having a particularly bad, particularly visibly horrible moment. But all it is is like, this sort of weird latent shit like coming to the surface. Sorry, I just swore. Is it the end of the recording for the radio? Is that okay? Sorry. <laughs> um, so yeah, there's like all this stuff that's like been buried and sort of sublimated is just like coming up. And so it's like, it's not like I've, I've written, it's not like Donald Trump become president and I was like, now I gotta write a feminist book. Like I had, you know, I had to do that because like this is what it's like to like be in a, a woman's body and a queer person's body. Like that, you know, that is, 
this was necessary before and will continue to be necessary into the future. And honestly, I'm not super optimistic about anything changing. Um, people keep asking me, like, how do you feel about the future? And I'm like, real, real bad. I don't think, I actually don't think anything's going to get better. And I think that we're having a moment right now, but we have moments constantly. And, like, I think it's going to eventually get, like, chewed up by the news cycle and then, like, we'll be back to square one. Um, I was saying because I was just so sad. Okay, uh, but yeah. So so yeah. So I mean, it, it feels weird to have it just like be in that space. I'm glad it's been. People have found it very cathartic and very helpful and useful. Um, like that's really awesome, and I love that. I wish I could just like give it away, and then like Trump would not be president. But you know. So sorry. So you're asking like how like why do I choose to like, do these sort of nested narratives? Is that um, yeah? So I mean I. Yeah, so like storytelling is very important in my family. My grandfather was sort of my, my first storyteller. My father had an ongoing series of stories he told me at bedtime called Bosmo, um, about Bosmo the, the Beamish boy who would uh, frolic around the forest and was friends with the bears and stuff. And he would just like make up chapters of this like ridiculous, weird story about like basically Peter Pan, I guess. Um, so that was like a storytelling thing. I, I read a lot. Um, and I, I feel like I was really interested in the ways in which stories, like I really loved A Little Princess. Did you guys read A Little Princess? So I, I'm obs I, and I was recently looking through it again, and I was like, this is an amazing book. I really love it. I wanted to go to boarding school as a child, and I think that's, that's why. Um, and, you know, in that story, like she's telling stories, right? And like sort of the thing that sustains her and keeps her going are these like stories and narratives that she learned as a child. Um, and I think the stories are the engine that sort of push us through our lives. Um, and so it seems weird. I mean, so, I, so it, it feels like, like, obviously, I'm very explicitly metafictionally calling attention to those nested narratives. Um, but I think that actually it's sort of the building blocks of storytelling already. Um, because you're always responding to something that you've heard or that you've experienced or like a story someone's told you or a story someone has read. So it's just like it's part of the DNA. Isn't that like a Muriel Rukeyser quote? Something about like stories being atoms. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not gonna mess it up. It's a good quote. You should look it up. Um. <laughs> Last question, burning question. Yes. Oh my God. Where do I start? Um, so last year was like a bonanza short story collection year. Um, probably my favorites. Actually, I'm. Well, so, so Sophia Samantar, who I mentioned earlier, had a book come out called Tender. That's her collected short stories, include and some new some new work. She's amazing. Um, Bennett Sims has a, had a new collection called White Dialogues. That's amazing. Um, Jenny Zhang's Sour Heart, I absolutely loved. Probably my favorite of the whole year was um, Leslie Nenka Arama's What It Means That a Man Falls From the Sky. Um, I'm like obsessed with Leslie in kind of a slightly unhealthy way. So yeah, I feel like last year was just like, I mean, obviously good short story collections come out every year, but I feel like last year I just like was falling all over them. So um, yeah, I'd say there's some, some good recent books that I checked out. I also just read Mallory Ortberg's new collection that's coming out and it's like, it's perfect. So buy it when it comes out, it's really good. Excellent, thank you so much everybody. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Carmen Maria Machado gave this reading on January 18th at the Seattle Public Library's Central Library. Stay current with us by subscribing to our podcast 
wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in again soon. Thank you.